0: You are listening to The Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with The Wealth Formula Podcast. Now, before we get started with today's episode, I do want to remind everybody that there is a special report waiting for you to download for free at wealthformula.com on how to legally save thousands of dollars in taxes. Now, you might be surprised by some of the things in that report. They're totally legal, but a lot of times people don't know about this stuff. So you might have an opportunity to save thousands of dollars in taxes if you just download that report and get that information. So let's talk today on this episode for a minute about how a bank works. So as you know, you deposit money in the bank. And these days they pay you less than 1% on that of interest for the money that you deposit. Now, because they're a bank, they're actually able to lend out most of the money you deposited. And that is called the fractional reserve system. It's complicated and probably best addressed in detail in another episode or, say, an article, or maybe you ought to just look that up. But in a nutshell, this is how it works. So the bank only needs to keep a tiny percentage of what you deposit, and they can lend out the rest. So say you deposit $10, the bank lends out $9 and keeps your $1 in the bank. Of course, you never told them that they could do that, and you assume that your money's in the bank and that you can access it anytime you want. And in theory, I suppose you can, as long as everyone else doesn't want their money back at the same time. So when the bank lends out your money to a borrower, they charge a much higher rate, as you know than what they're paying you, and they make a lot of money off of it, and they didn't even pay you for putting your money at risk, right? Hardly. Well, wouldn't it be nice if a bank told you exactly what they're doing with their money? And what if they said, hey, we're going to take your deposits, lend them out as secured loans, and furthermore, instead of paying you a nominal negative rate on your deposit, what we're going to do is we're going to let you keep the majority of those profits. That might sound a little bit more interesting, right? Well, that's pretty much what real estate debt investing is. And when we come back today, my friend Rick Vonderstedt from Tower Real Estate Fund is going to tell us all about how that works. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to wealthformulabanking.com. Again, that's wealthformulabanking.com. Welcome back, everybody. So today I've got Rick Vandersit with me. Now, Rick is residential and commercial lender, and he's funded over a billion dollars in loans. But in addition to that, he's a founder of the Tower Real Estate Fund, which focuses on debt investing. And it's uh, primarily, well, I guess solely right now focused on the Chicago metropolitan area, which is a pretty nice market to be in. He's a registered investment advisor as well. So welcome, Rick. Thank you. So let me get started. So now I one disclaimer, it's not really a disclaimer, but Rick is also a friend of mine and I invest in his fund. So I know a lot about what Rick is doing and I have him on the show because I've been happy with my own results. But I'm going to pretend I don't know a lot of that just so that I can ask you a lot of the questions Rick, that I think a lot of people who are not familiar with the kinds of things that you do would be asking. So, But before we get there, you started out, it sounds like, as purely a commercial or residential lender. So give me a little background on where you started and how you ended up where you're at.
1: Well, of course, doing uh, loans over the years and you seeing up and down markets, I've seen many uh, banks, mortgage companies make a lot of money, be very successful, and then I've seen them just drop off the face of the earth and get Completely wiped out in a bad market, especially here in 2008, where I would say probably 50% of the lending industry was wiped out. A lot of the people in this arena dealing with mortgage backed securities lost their jobs, et cetera, et cetera. The opportunity after I guess the dust settled, in my opinion, was probably one of the greatest opportunities that I have seen since 1990 of me being in the lending business of getting into this private lending, being that the banks had, with all the regulations, the banks had to go under and the financial trouble the banks were having, it was just a huge opportunity. So I started out just doing one loan here and there. So I would match up an investor with a particular loan. So we'd make one loan on a Let's say it could be a single family investment property or an apartment building. After doing several of those, I realized I needed to put a fund together so that we could get diversification and demand was just so high. I just needed a lot more money.
0: So let's back up a little bit. Now, the Tower Fund was a fund that you developed that was separate from your lending business. So you started out essentially like a lot of the other lenders. You survived 2008. Most of them didn't. And then you found this opportunity because there was not a lot of people lending anymore. Is that right?
1: Correct. There was just a giant hole in the lending market. Banks were not lending. There were a lot of good loans out there that banks were saying no to. There were a lot of people are very fearful of making loans. And they were just fearing fear itself because a lot of these loans made common sense. I just took advantage of that, and we went in and we just started making loans to borrowers where it just made common sense, where the equity was there, the value was there, the rental income was there. There was just a huge demand for it.
0: So when you talk about the Tower Fund, which is ultimately what came of this, you describe it as essentially a fund for debt investing. Can you kind of expand on that? What exactly does that mean, and what does the Tower Fund do? The
1: Tower Fund does exactly what a bank does but we do it a lot better and a lot faster. Depositors will take their money, put it into a bank, essentially earning no interest at all on their money. The bank then will take that money and make loans and they will secure those loans against apartment buildings, single family rentals, commercial property. It could be someone, let's say, that has a heating and air conditioning business and they own the building that they have their business in. So, banks would make loans on those types of properties. What's been happening is the banks are making loans and they're charging 5 and 6% interest, okay? Essentially, they're paying 0% in interest to everybody who has their money in the bank. So where does that 5 or 6% interest go? Well, basically, the bank is keeping all that money. They're paying all their employees. So that's why every time you walk into a bank, there's a lot of people... And it doesn't seem like they're all real busy, but everyone's (laughs) drawing their salaries. They're getting their benefits and they're basically, it's taking advantage of you and your money. So we do exactly what the bank does. We make those same loans that the bank is doing. Okay. But we don't pay you 0%. We are paying 80% of the interest of the income that we're generating So it would be like a bank is charging, let's say, an average of 5 5 5.5%. Let's say if a bank is charging 5%. If we were the same as a bank, your money in the bank would be earning 4% interest. So you're kind of getting ripped off when you put money in the bank. I mean, personally, I don't like to have any money in the bank. It's not a great place to have in case you need that short-term liquidity. So we're making loans. We use the same documentation that a bank will use for our closing docs. As an example, somebody owns a five-unit apartment building. We'll get it appraised. If, let's say, that building is worth $400,000, we'll make them a $300,000 loan. We'll charge them 10 to 12% in interest. They'll pay us, make us the payment every month, and then 80% of that goes to the investors of the fund.
0: Right. So there's two parts of this that you're kind of talking to, and I just want to make sure I break them down so that the listeners are clear. From the investor side, people who are investing in the Tower Fund, we are essentially in that case, and I say we because I am an investor in the Tower Fund, we are providing the cash the way the bank would have cash to lend. Bank just happens to borrow it from the Federal Reserve and doesn't pay any interest. But in the case of the fund, what you're doing is we are essentially making a deposit into the tower fund. And then effectively, what you're doing is taking those deposits and lending out that deposited money for a much higher return. And instead of keeping it, you're giving 80% of those profits back to the investor. Is that right?
1: That That is correct.
0: Okay. Now, the other part of this which I think is really interesting because now you understand why it would be good to be the bank. You know, you're making money on people's debt. The other thing that is, I think, interesting about the Tower Fund, as I understand it, even though it's 2016 now and it's, you know, eight years away from the crisis, there's still a number of types of properties that banks typically won't lend on. And part of that is simply because they're not big enough, right? Isn't that part of the deal?
1: There's many reasons why a bank would not make a loan. And it's not just that, oh, we've had a lot of foreclosures, you know, since this 2008 crisis. I mean, there were back in the 1990s. So, you know, we're talking 20 years ago when I first got into the business, there were foreclosures. There's always been foreclosures. There's always been people that run into hard times. It's not just because of this recent real estate collapse. So there's always a need for short-term money, and we can close a loan within seven days. Whereas in many times, you know, a bank needs a lot of documentation. It could take you 60 days, 90 days. We're fast. We issue approvals quickly. Let's say if you were buying a property and you had to close in three weeks, okay? And if you don't close in three weeks, you're going to lose that deal. So that person could come to us and we'll say, yeah, fine, you know, here's your loan commitment. We will do that deal. We can get it, put it together quickly, and it's done. If you go to a bank, the bank is going to say, okay, well, give me a long list of documentation. It takes you three, four days or longer, five days, you get the documentation to your banker. Your banker then takes three, four, five, six days. Maybe he needs more information packages things up, and then you have to present your loan to a loan committee. And then typically loan committees meet on a certain day of the week, and sometimes they don't meet every week. It could be every other week. So then your loan goes to the loan committee, and one person on the loan committee could say, well, you know, I have a problem with this part of this deal. Can you get us more information and then come back to us? So now the loan officer has to come back to you, Get more information, and then maybe a week or two weeks later, you go to the loan committee again. So, essentially, as a borrower, and a lot of our borrowers, you know, they get this, they can be getting jerked around for three, four, five weeks, maybe six weeks, and now all of a sudden they might find out, well, the bank doesn't like their loan. So, my experience with that too is I also broker loans as well. So, I've had a lot of experience where I would present a deal to a bank and two weeks later they would come back and say, well, uh, Rick, we're going to take a pass on this one. And I would say, well, what do you mean? You know, why, what are you passing on? And it's just somebody doesn't like something about it or, you know, just logically it's a good loan and they should do the loan, but for any reason they want, if they don't like the color of your property if they don't like what type of business it is, there could be any reason whatsoever they could deny your
0: loan. So how do you decide? Uh, I mean, you've got certain criteria I know for the fund because you and I have talked about you know, me in certain situations doing some hard money loans for properties that did not qualify for the fund itself. There may be some people who want to borrow from you out there. Now, when you look at a deal, what's your typical deal? And you know, is there a certain size? It has to be at least a certain size. It has to be smaller than a certain size. What's your typical loan-to-value? Can you give us some parameters on that? Yeah,
1: I mean, we will go up to 80% loan-to-value, depending on the property. So it's it's really all a common sense, okay? So when we make a loan, we look at it from the perspective that if for some reason we had to take that property back through foreclosure or, or whatever situation then we need to be okay with taking that property back. Are we going to be able to rent the property out? You know, if it's a rehab project, are we going to be able to finish the rehab? So that's how we look at every transaction, as if we would have to take back and own it. We do have a huge group of attorneys, contractors, real estate professionals, and investors. So, More than likely, if we had to take a property back, I mean, I would be on the phone with my investors, with my contractors, and seeing who wants to help us with that property, you know, whether finishing the rehab, buying it from us for our note, whatever it is. So we have a lot of ways to get out of it where a bank doesn't really have, they kind of stumble with it. You know, when they end up getting a property and if they end up taking it back, they kind of struggle with it. And banks really. The, the regulators do not want banks to own any real estate. They just want the bank to make the loan. If it's a bad loan, they have to get rid of that, dispose of it. So we're okay. If we end up taking the property back and renting it out, you know we're okay. Well, a lot of the guys that come to us, they rehab properties. It could be um, single family. In Chicago, I mean, there's over uh, 2 million properties just in, actually in Cook County that are zoned multi-unit. There's a lot of apartment buildings, a lot of mixed use. We've even done some commercial properties, small commercial. Of course, if there's any industrial or commercial property, we make sure that it's environmentally clear. So we look for a phase one on it. We don't want to lend on property that has you know, gas tanks underground or oil tanks that might leak. That could be an expensive problem. But and also we look at properties if they need too much rehab. We want to make sure the individual that we're lending to has experience with rehabbing. So experience of our borrowers is of the highest importance.
0: So let me ask you this from, you know, if people are listening right now, they might be wondering, so is this what they call hard money lending? Is that what this is?
1: I guess you could say that's the term that they're using, hard money. I don't know if I agree with that term, but I think a lot of people understand that it's non-bank money, so it's going to be a higher interest rate. The loans that we make are anywhere from one year to three years, like I like to call our loans, we're, we're lending. It's soft money, <laughs> okay. so it's not like it's. We want to take back your property. You know, a lot of these guys, they're making a lot of money on these transactions, and they're just paying us a little bit of interest, and we're okay with that. We just we want to be their partners. They pay us a little bit of interest, and you know, have at it. We want them to make as much money as they can.
0: I think one of the major distinctions I would make with what people think about in terms of hard money lending and this is that it's not lending on one property. So certainly I think hard money lending, when we hear that term, sometimes it makes us think about, okay, well, you're going to take one property and somebody needs money and you're going to charge them 15%. And uh, if it fails, then you're going to foreclose. And it sounds like sort of a risky endeavor. I mean, who wants to get involved with foreclosures and all that? But the value right. in this is very much that it is not just about one deal. It's about, I don't know, a whole bunch of deals, right? I mean, the fund, how big is the fund now?
1: Well, we have over $10 million right now in mortgages, outstanding.
0: What's the average deal um, size?
1: The average deal size is around 250000
0: So that's a pretty good size, you so, know, diversified portfolio, as they would say. So it's not like you've got a huge amount of your equity or debt, in this case, stuck with one project. And I think that's definitely one of the values that I see in it. I mean, compared to other hard money lending where you've got one deal and if it goes down, then you've got to you know deal with some other things, too. What do you think some of the other advantages sure. of debt lending?
1: Some of the advantages, I mean, it's extremely liquid investment. When you invest in real estate, you, know, you own that real estate, but what happens if the roof starts leaking? Now you could have a $20,000 expense, what we call a capital call. Now all of a sudden you have to come up with the cash for that. When you're lending people money, you don't have the capital calls and also being in a diversified portfolio. So I do not believe in making one or two or three individual loans with your own money. If you end up in a situation where one of those borrowers stops paying you, you potentially could have a problem. So, we have a large enough quantity of loans in our portfolio that if we have one or two or three or five or 10 of our borrowers not paying us, it's not a disaster for us. We still have plenty of cash flow and so Some advantages, it's diversified, a very stable source of income. It's adding another source of income. It doesn't, we don't fluctuate with the stock market and the bond market. And it's a private investment. So we're not tied to any of these exchanges, to the New York Stock Exchange there's a disadvantage with that as well. If you have all your money that's tied to that system, I think one day there was like a glitch in the system. Is I think it was the Nasdaq or the New York Stock Exchange, and the market dropped like a thousand points. And it was the New York Stock Exchange. The market dropped a thousand points in like less than a minute. That was, I think, what they call a flash crash. Yeah. So you know, whenever you're dealing with computers and software you have risk there. Someone goes in and hacks into our system, sabotages the system. You could actually be stuck where you can't actually access your money. Even though you might have a beautiful statement that comes in at the end of the month that says all this money you have, you have that risk. So we don't have that risk. It's very stable. It's different security. I do believe everybody should have some exposure to the private markets and not have 100% 100% of their investable assets in these publicly traded markets. Yeah, we talked um, a lot
0: about that on this show, Rick, which is, it's essentially when you're focused 100% in the capital markets, the public capital markets, you're sort of at the whim of whatever the geopolitical problem or the flavor of the day is. And those markets react in real time with emotion, whereas something like this, well, somebody has to pay their rent The landlord has to pay the mortgage. And in that regard, it's a lot more like a bond, isn't it?
1: Yeah, you have the benefits of the bond because you're getting your stable source of income. We're in first mortgage position, so we have a first mortgage lien. We have an actual mortgage that is filed. It becomes public record, and it's secured against the real estate. So it's a secured investment. In many cases, it's actually safer than a bond, safer than a corporate bond, because when you invest in a corporate bond, it's not secured against any specific asset, but what it is, it's secured against the ability of that corporation to actually pay that money back. So as long as that corporation is earning money, they can pay you back. So really what it is, a bond is like a business loan. Whereas we don't make business loans. We have hard collateral. You know, you can walk up to the building and kick it. It's there. It's like owning real estate, but you don't have the hassles of managing the real estate. But we are able to take advantage of, like you said, that person who's renting that apartment. And they have to live somewhere. So it doesn't really matter what the stock market is doing or the bond market is doing. That person wakes up every morning. They go to work. They earn their income. They get their paychecks. And then once a month, they pay rent. So they're going to pay rent whether the stock market drops, you know, goes down 1,000 points or goes up 1,000 points.
0: So tell me this. You have a lot of investors in the Tower Real Estate Fund who are actually people who invest in real estate. So why do you think they invest in the fund?
1: There's a group of people where they like to control their money. They want their money to be in a predictable investment. I mean, I believe in the stock market as well. I believe in diversifying and I own equities as well. I don't do individual stocks. I I believe in in being more of like a fund or indexes. We like to know, and I say we because that's how I believe. I want a predictable return. I want something I can control. When my money is in the stock market, you know, if I own Apple stock, I don't know what Apple is going to do from one day to the next. The European Union just hit Apple with a $15 billion, or I think it was like $13.5 billion in income taxes because Apple's been able to get away with not really paying any income taxes. So I can't control that. That is totally unpredictable. And the experts understand that. There's no way they can predict that. They just hope the market keeps going up. So we don't really invest based upon a hope and a prayer. We know that there's tenants in the building. We know what we can rent it out for. And we're collecting that and we can control that. So the real estate investors, they want to diversify as well. So when you own real estate, it's really not a liquid investment. If you buy a building, most people own the home they live in, or most of the people investing in our fund. In order for you to get out of that or get your money back, you have to find a real estate agent, you have to list it for sale, people come to the property, someone has to be interested in buying, then they have to qualify for a mortgage and it's a very lengthy process. It's not considered a liquid investment. And then you have to pay a lot of expenses in the range of 6 to 10% when you sell and also when you purchase, you pay expenses as well. So we don't really have those expenses when we make mortgages, and we're very liquid. So when you're part of the fund, we have loans that are paying off all the time. Every month, we have loans paying off. And investors in the fund, if they need their money, they can come to us and, and request their money back. So it's a fairly liquid investment, whereas real estate is not. And these real estate investors, they understand what we're doing, and they understand the work involved when they own property and the risks involved. And they look at, at the fund as a much less lower risk without the headache.
0: Right. Of- I think the other point about your fund and one of the things that I was attractive to me about it was that you're not making high risk loans. You're probably one of the more conservative people I know when it comes to these kinds of things. You're just focusing on things that really make sense. And I suspect because of that, you probably don't get a lot of defaulting on these loans, do you?
1: If I was to say what type of default, we've had very few over the last 3 years who have gone, you know, payments are due on the 1st. Very few that go 30 days late. I think we had maybe one or two and that was due to us moving cuz moved into Chicago. We're in the suburbs, I wanted a Chicago address. And of course, you know, we rehabbed our own property and it was just touch and go as to when exactly we were going to move in. So we got to some of the people that we moved so they could mail their checks in. Right. And, I mean, uh, you know, the mail was terrible. But, yes, but yeah, but we've had no defaults. Right. If, it certainly hasn't somebody-
0: affected returns because I know I've been in the fund for about two years and I've been getting steady checks every month, which is kind of nice. I kind of like right. this, you know, I just to give you some perspective on this. And the reason I wanted to have, because, again, he's somebody that I actually do invest with and, you know, you have to do your own due diligence – on Rick and his fund, but you know, he is somebody I trust, you know, regular returns with and feel very comfortable with. As a real estate investor myself, and I've got some apartment buildings that are doing really high returns comparatively. And by the way, Rick pretty much set me up with some of those apartment buildings. The reason to have something like this is because when you look at what people who invest in stocks and bonds do, The stocks have a little bit more volatility and then the bonds don't have volatility, but they have greater yield. I think the reason why there's so many real estate investors in your fund is, you know, we kind of view it the same way. You know, you've got your apartment buildings or whatever. They're a little bit more work and you have capital calls because you need a new roof or so on and so forth. So that most of the time you're getting higher returns, but then, you know, once in a while you don't. And here in your back pocket, you've got something that represents the real estate investor's bond, which is investing in things that you understand and you believe in, but you kind of just set it and forget it. And I don't even look at what you send me anymore. I mean, because it's just, I have my own money that comes in there, just roll back into the fund. So I think it's a very interesting thing for people to consider who are, especially who are already real estate investors, because you understand this. So, we talked about some of the advantages and I guess some of the disadvantages. You do need to be an accredited investor. Correct. That means what is the definition now? Is it 250?
1: 200,000 individual income per year or 300,000 total income for husband and wife. Annually, or net worth of a million dollars. Yeah, net
0: worth of a million dollars, right. And what kinds of returns is the fund giving right now, and where do you anticipate that going?
1: Well, as far as returns, I always tell people that if our returns change from where they're at, then the other returns elsewhere in the market are going to change along with it. So we've been in the 8% plus, been 8.5% a little bit more than that. We've been consistently uh, returning that. And I guess as a comparison, there's an exchange traded fund. It's a high, because we're talking about corporate bonds. I think we're more compared to bonds, which you had mentioned. So there's one, the symbol is HYG. And so that's a high yield corporate bond ETF everyone's probably heard, you know, a high yield bond is what they refer to as a junk bond. Okay. So those are the most poorly rated bonds. Those are considered high risk. And the yield on that right now, and I'm just looking on Yahoo's finance page is 5.48%. And the three-year return in this category was 3.92%. So we're like double the three-year turn and we're right now currently 3% higher than this high yield fund, which is they're considered junk bonds. And I would have to say our debt is a better quality because the junk bonds, again, remember what, what those corporate bonds are. It's like a business loan. You're not making a loan that is secured directly against an asset. You're lending money to a corporation. And then it's based upon that corporation's ability to make payments. We've all heard of corporations that have actually gone out of business, one of them being sports authority, just went out of business. So if you had any bonds with sports authority, you're done. They're gone. Yeah, or
0: even if you want something real stable, then you're looking at, you know, what is it? Sovereign debt, which is either pretty much zero or negative at this point. Yeah, yeah. So it's a pretty good place to put some money away as sort of the reliable month-over-month investment.
1: If you had... $500,000 five hundred thousand dollars and you are putting it where would you put it right now and what kind of return would you get so if you put it into this high yield you would be earning five percent on your money which on five hundred thousand is twenty five thousand a year yeah, not
0: a bad deal Rick, if people are interested in talking to you a little bit more about the tower real estate fund either as an investor or potentially if people are in the Chicago area and looking to fund a deal how do they get a hold of you?
1: The best way to uh, get a hold of me is my phone number is 847-729-1400. And it's just due to the way we are set up under Reg D with the SEC. We're not actually in a position where we can go out and advertise for it. You know, We're not like all over the internet advertising for investors. Right now, the majority of our investors are coming through word of mouth we're starting to get a lot of referrals from our existing investors who are very happy. So the phone phone is the best.
0: Good. And the other thing, I think if any listeners want to, feel free to reach out to me, buck at wealthformula.com, and I'll be happy to send you my statement that I have, (laughs) at least in terms of the money I've earned from uh, Rick for the last year and a half. I know that sounds ridiculous, but uh, I'm happy with it. So, Rick, thanks very much for your time, and we'll see you next time at WealthFormula.com. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at WealthFormula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com.